0: This podcast does not provide medical nor legal advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording.
1: Hello and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast where we talk about serious illness, dying, death, and bereavement. I'm Marianne Matzo, a nurse practitioner, and I use my experience from working as a nurse for 45 years to help answer your questions about what happens at the end of life.
0: And I'm Charlie Navarette an actor in New York City, and here to offer an every-person viewpoint to our podcast. We are both here because we believe that the more you know, the better prepared you will be to make difficult decisions.
1: So welcome to this week's show, which happens to be our Halloween show. Although every day seems like Halloween with Charlie and I. Mm -hmm. You know, we eat too much candy and Mm -hmm. scare people. So ignore that, and we'll just relax. Get yourself something spooky to drink, some cake, some stickers, bars, whatever floats your boat. And thank you for spending the next hour with Charlie and me for our discussion about ghost bikes and public grieving. In the first half, Charlie presents our recipe of the week, which is one of his favorite food groups, martinis. He also has another Overlooked Obituary, which is a series of obituaries about remarkable people whose deaths, beginning in 1851, went unreported in the New York Times. This week is about Henny Schaft, a resistance fighter during World War II. She killed Nazis in the Netherlands and was known as the girl with the red hair on their most wanted list. Then, she was executed by Nazi officers. In the second half, we talk about public grieving and ghost bicycles, and in the third half, Charlie has a different sort of obituary to read to us. So, you all ready for
0: Halloween, Charles? Um, no. The um, I was I was talking with a friend yesterday, actually, in, in, uh, from Michigan, and she was saying that the the colors were. Not the trees had not changed colors completely, but you know they were moving along and I looked out the the back window here marianne the, the trees are still green there's they're, they're, really? there's some of the leaves are changing marianne it's it, we're a week away from November, and the trees are still green
1: well, I'm sitting here in shorts and a tank top because it's <laughs> going to be eighty four today so <laughs> Um,
0: yeah, there we are. You yeah. can,
1: you, you can do without as, as you wish, but you know, it's been a hundred and whatever all summer. So
0: yeah, she said, well, that? yeah. And, and then she said, well, you know, maybe, uh, uh, it'll be different in Central Park. You should go walk through Central Park. And I thought, oh, it's a good idea. And then I thought, wait a minute, it's it's the same damn city. It's not going to. I, I am curious, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's not like your house in, in Central Park is that far. Yeah, away
0: exactly. From each other. Um, but it was just weird. It's like there's so much green. Oh well, well that's the big news <sighs> of the week.
1: So we probably need a martini after
0: that, huh? Yes. Any is a good time. Any reason is a good reason for a martini. There are yes. some funerals you are going to go to where you wish you had a martini or two to get you through the service and funeral lunch. Maybe you even have a friend attending that you know would agree with you. This week, we take a break from the usual funeral food and offer you actor Stanley Tucci's martini recipe. Mr. Tucci.
1: Oh, Stanley, Stanley. Tucci. Isn't he just dreamy?
0: Stanley. Um,
1: oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud?
0: Um, no, we're all reading your mind. Mr. Tucci, oh. a former bartender, has strong feelings about the many origin stories of the martini. Too many people say too many things, and I wish they'd stop. He says, "The only thing that matters is that the martini exists." On, Amen, Stanley. And 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 sorry. And also good for Marianne that Mr. Tucci exists. On his Instagram,
1: just dreamy.
0: Um, come on, admit it. He is a very charming man. Did um, there was an he did a series on uh, on wines, a series
1: on Italian food. Yeah,
0: on wines, remember that several years ago? It ran for a couple of seasons, it was on PBS. Um, where he just you know talked to people, have different people try different wines. Yeah.
1: Oh, that's not the one I'm thinking oh.
0: about. Wait, are you, think, are you thinking about he the movie like where? Um,
1: no, this was like some sort of series or something that he was doing. Like eating. Oh, with oh, recently? No, 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 yeah, uh, Italy.
0: Where? Yeah, you went to Italy. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, um, yeah. Yes, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I I yes, <laughs> I think I saw one episode. Um, it was fine. Where were we? Um, <sighs> Oh, yes, Stanley, to his, well, to his friends, <laughs> of course, Mr. Tucci to me, uh, shares his ideal recipe uh, that can be made into a gin or, heaven forbid, a vodka martini. There's a time and place for both. Both are extra dry martinis with just a whiff of vermouth and, of course, are stirred, not shaken. For the record, James Bond was ordering a weak martini. Shaking a cocktail causes the ice cubes to chip, meaning they will melt and dilute the drink due to the aeration and agitation caused by shaking. This means a shaken martini is less flavorful. Shaking also alters the texture and mouthfeel of a cocktail. It's the quintessence of elegance that we all aspire to and believe we acquire when we drink one, Tucci adds. Finish it with lemon peel or green olives. Additionally, make sure the glass you enjoy the cocktail in is ice cold. Temperature plays a huge role in maintaining texture and enhancing flavor. We're not sure how elegant you'll look, but it may just be the thing for those more difficult funerals. In contrast, on April 17th, 1945, two Nazi officers forced a 24-year-old woman to walk ahead of them toward the dunes along the Dutch coast. The woman was a Dutch resistance fighter, Hanny Schaft. As she is walking, one of the officers fires his gun at the back of her head. The bullet ricochets off her skull and doesn't kill her. The other officer then shoots her, also in the back of the head, at closer range. This is how Henny Schaft died just a few weeks before the end of World War II in Europe known as the girl with the red hair who had shot and killed multiple Nazis and collaborators Schaft was studying law at the University of Amsterdam to become a human rights lawyer when the Nazis occupied the Netherlands in May 1940 plunging the country into war and targeting Jewish citizens She was described as a serious principal girl a bookworm. Though Shaft was not Jewish, the occupation set her on a path to political activism. As the Nazi regime's policies got harsher against Jews, her own sense of moral outrage grew stronger. The armed resistance was not one organized movement, but rather a tangle of overlapping networks, an extremely dangerous undertaking, with many fighters arrested and executed. It's unclear how many attacks can be attributed to Shaft but researchers say there were at least six. She got around doing her resistance work on her bike. Before confronting her targets, Schaft put on makeup, including lipstick and mascara, and styled her hair. In one of the few direct quotations that have been attributed to her, she explained, I'll die clean and beautiful. Once the Nazis started looking for the girl with the red hair, as she was described on their most wanted list, Schaff disguised herself by dyeing her hair black and wearing wire frame glasses. She had made it a point not to put anything in writing. After the liberation of the Netherlands in 1945, Miss Schaff's body was dug up from a mass grave with hundreds of other people the Nazis had executed. She was the only woman among them. You know, just when you think that you've
1: heard all the stories there are to hear about the Holocaust, you you know, something else comes up and you say, Man, that's I never heard that story before.
0: Yeah, and there's
1: it's so sad.
0: And really just there are just so many stories out there, you know, we'll never know. And you know, when you know, people came back from uh We're fighting the war that, you know, a lot of people just didn't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Mm. Please go to our webpage for this week's martini recipe and additional resources for this program. Your tax-deductible donations are always welcome so that we can continue to offer you quality programming. Thank you in advance for making your donation at www.everyonedies.org. That's every the number one dies.org. Marianne?
1: Thanks for the stories, Charlie. You know, how we express our grief is a very personal thing. But in the face of public and violent deaths, the grief moves from being private to the larger community as part of the national or sometimes international healing process. One way that this is done is the building of shrines at the site of the death. Shrines offer people the opportunity to express private emotions in a public form and provide a creative way to seek both individual consolation and communal recovery in the face of a public tragedy. Spontaneous shrines give us insight into the process of commemoration, community grief, and the beginning of establishing a public memory of the death. These shrines are built before it would ever be possible to build any other type of commemorative structure. These shrines are built in the earliest stage of public and private grief. In early America, death and burial were presided over by the family of the deceased to clean the body, built the coffin, dug the grave. At that time in our history, death was close and personal. By the 20th century, death had been delegated to professionals in healthcare and in the funeral industry. Instead of burial on the family homestead, the dead were buried in cemeteries that are removed from the community at large. In the same way that death rituals occur outside of the community, grieving is a private matter, and the bereaved are expected to follow the rules by controlling their emotions in public. Jack Goody points out, the interrelationship of loss of local community, detachment from personal death and tragedy. He says the lack of communities, the growth of individualism, involves a certain withdrawal from each other's personal problems, including their deaths and their dead, unless these occur within the context of a natural calamity. It is within the disaster in the community that a sense of national community is formed and individuals feel both the grief that is often repressed in personal context and a need to actively respond. Which brings us to ghost bikes. The ghost bikes commemorate bikers killed while riding. And we're talking bicycles, not, you know, Harleys. In 2002, after seeing a cyclist riding in a bike lane get hit by a van, Van Dertuin, who was 24 at the time, decided the time had come for an idea that had been in the back of his mind for a while. So one night, he got a twisted bike, painted it ghostly white, and it had a Cyclist Struck Here sign, appeared at the site where the woman was struck. The bike was removed within a few days, but Van de Turn thought it had an impact. He said, passing it every day, I could see the reaction from the drivers. People were slowing down in this residential neighborhood, and that amazed me. Through 2004, he installed about 20 others throughout the city, taking a sledgehammer to bikes that were not mangled looking enough. He was soon overwhelmed by letters from people worldwide who were touched by the memorials. There are now ghost bike memorials all over the world. Everyone involved with the ghost bikes has a story. Eric Borer, a cyclist with Ghost Bikes Pittsburgh, has battle scars. He was hit by a motorist in 2003 and laid up for nine months with a broken leg. In 2004, after a bicyclist was killed and a bike messenger needed his face reconstructed after a crash, Bohr and a group of bike activists installed 14 ghost bikes around the city. Police and maintenance workers have removed all but one, which is starting to lose its ghostly coloring. While ghost bikes are public memorials to bikers who have met violent deaths, they also serve other purposes. The Ghost Bike Memorial is used to mourn the deceased, warn others of danger, and protest unsafe or unfair condition for bicycle riders with the hope of achieving social change. These memorials are placed along streets and highways to get the community's attention. Their presence seeks to represent social change by encouraging witnesses to consider the cultural implications of death and to do something that creates change. Costatini, in his academic paper about ghost bikes memorials, writes that a roadside memorial functions as both places of mourning and places of resistance. He writes of attending a ghost bike installation and die-in protest in New Orleans City Hall, which brings the personal experience of the city's riders to the government's front door through the performance of funerary practices. The event was for Ben Gregory, who had been killed after being hit by a car. The fourth cycling death for New Orleans that year, and the cycling community had organized the protest to reinforce the arguments for infrastructure improvements they had been presenting during town meetings. So at this memorial, they had several men to serve as pallbearers to the all-white bicycle. They lay the bicycle on its side, And lifted to shoulder height, transforming the bicycle into a coffin and the crowd into a funeral procession. They follow the pallbearers through the park and across the city to City Hall. As a bagpiper plays Amazing Grace, the bike is chained to a street sign and people began placing their offerings—incense, flowers, Others write messages on the bike's frame with a black marker, and the rest kneel on the sidewalk surrounding the ghost bike as news reporters and their cameras document the crowd. Speech is calling for improved cycling infrastructure throughout the city. Bodies and bicycles lie on the ground as the names of the six people killed while riding in the previous two years are read aloud. Though so there is no one set ritual associated with the ghost bike installation, many are preceded by a collective bike ride from the starting point to the scene of a crash. Each of these ghost bikes installation speeches references the goals of the protesters who are seeking change through the illustration of their struggles, and each strives to capture the attention of the political representatives housed within City Hall, the lawmakers and influencers who have the power to create those changes. In addition to the ghost bike being a shrine to the deceased, they are also a way for the community to support cyclists' right to safe travel. So, have you ever heard of ghost bikes? Do you see them around the city, Charles?
0: Um, no, I. When you told me you were going to do this, I thought ghost bike. I just had this, you know, bizarre image that uh, you know people think they see a ghost. But riding a bike. So, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't look it up or anything when you mentioned it. No, I was not aware of this.
1: So we have um, a link in our show notes that takes you to the Ghost Bikes website. And there, there's a tab. You could go over to your individual state or country. And they'll tell you where the Ghost Bikes are in your city. So like in Oklahoma I think there was only one and I forget where it was but if you're interested you could see if you can find them you know
0: In our third half everyone dies listeners know how much we like an offbeat obituary today we have the obituary for William Ziegler William Ziegler escaped this mortal realm on Friday July 29, 2016, at the age of 69. We think he did it on purpose, to avoid having to make a decision in the pending presidential election. He leaves behind four children, five grandchildren, and the potted meat industry, for which he was an unofficial spokesman until dietary restrictions forced him to eat real food. William volunteered for service in the United States Navy at the ripe old age of 17, and immediately realized he didn't much enjoy being bossed around. He only stuck it out for one war. Before his discharge, however, the government exchanged numerous ribbons and medals for various honorable acts. Upon his return to the city of New Orleans in 1971, thinking it best to keep an eye on him, government officials hired William as a fireman. After 25 years, he realized that running away from burning buildings made much more sense than running toward them. He promptly retired. Looking back, William stated that there was no better group of morons and mental patients than those he had the privilege of serving with. Except Bob. He never liked you, Bob. Following his wishes, there will not be a service, but well-wishers are encouraged to write a note of farewell on a Schaefer light beer can, and drink it in his honor. He was never one for sentiment or religiosity, but he wanted you to know that if he owes you a beer, and if you can find him in heaven, he will gladly allow you to buy him another. He can likely be found forwarding tasteless internet jokes. Check your spam folder, but don't open these at work. Expect to find an alcoholic dog named Judge passed out at his feet. Unlike previous times, this is not a ploy to avoid creditors or old girlfriends. He assures us that he is gone, and he'll be greatly missed.
2: Mm.
0: (laughs) So, from that farewell to ours, please stay tuned for the (laughs) continuing saga of Everyone Dies, and thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarette, and from science fiction writer Isaac Asimov, Life is pleasant. Death is peaceful. It's the transition that's troublesome.
1: Hmm. And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we'll see you next week. Remember, every day is a gift.
2: This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.